the one show begin. Hello. Hello. Welcome, Welcome to Butler's, to Butler's podcast. 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 Butler's po- podcast. <laughs> um, Today we're here with Tom Sergi from Ridgeview Estate. Okay, I'm, g- I'm going to channel my line of duty sort of mood here. So the um, officers in the room are myself, Henry, you. Yes, Cassie. Cassie and? And me, Tom. How you doing? <laughs> Tom Sergi. So we've got, we're really lucky to have Tom because he's the busiest man in, in Windham. Um, he, Tom works with the Ridgeview Estate uh, who make the English sparkling wine. So today we're going to discuss with Tom his role in the business and the wines that they produce. So, Thomas, could you tell us a little bit about... Um, you and how you fit into Ridgeview. I absolutely please. will. I'm doing nothing. I'm, I refuse to do anything <laughs> until you have a glass of fizz. It's, oh, like, I, I just, it's Friday hello. afternoon. Yes. It's not happening. Hello. hello. Here we go. Hello. He's done That's that. Party starts now. The oh, it's all over the place. Everywhere. Look at Ruined the colour. Thank you. That looks lovely. Okay. Super duper. So, first off, pouring so out. This is Bollinger, is this it? Is, yeah, 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 yeah. I go nowhere without it, actually. That's it. stuff. <laughs> So um, we're drinking Fitzrovia Rosé, which is which is our opening price point rosé. Okay. Um, so sort of bright, fresh, citrusy, zesty style, not overly sweet or anything, which is this nice sort of strawberry fruit. Very nice on a on a lovely Friday afternoon in Brighton, surely. Lovely Friday afternoon, fox in the garden, grapes are coming out in uh, Wilson Avenue, towers, aren't they? So fox it's uh, in the garden. Tom's Tom's first intro to to East Brighton, nay Whitehall, <laughs> but he's he's looking fairly comfortable at this I point. I heard rumours about it, it's, it's, and it's fantastic. So right, what did you ask me? Yeah, yeah. yeah Can yeah, you? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> shall I start with the questions? <laughs> uh, Tom, yeah. could you tell us first of all a little bit about Ridgeview Estate? and what you do there definitely definitely so so Ridgeview is we're the, the absolute baseline for us is we're a family business we are 25 years old as of 2020 it is going to be our 20th anniversary 25th anniversary and we do one thing and we do one thing only we make traditional method sparkling wine so that's sparkling wine made in exactly the same way as they do in champagne and have done since the very late 1600s something like that but in 1995 we decided that we were going to bring the same vines over, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, produce the same style of wines from the same great varieties, but crucially, make them communicate where they come from. Not try and just copy that. That's, you know, that was just some inspiration from Champagne, if you like. We're trying to make wines that taste like where they come from. So just to clar- clarify, you've never made any still wines or vermouths or fortified wines or anything else. It's Nothing. just sparkling yeah. wine. It's this really clear, um, absolute clarity and focus on one thing and one thing only. And so Ridgeview was started by Mike and his wife, Chris Roberts. So husband and wife duo. They bought 30 acres of land in Ditchling. So little village just north of Brighton, where we are now um, in 95, as I say. And they planted Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier with this just complete express view to just do fizz. Their son and daughter, Simon and Tamara, got involved nice and early doors as well. And so now the second generation of the family um, are the sort of the backbone of it. Tamara is now the CEO. Simon is the head winemaker and has been since the start. And both there are the halves. Mardi, who you guys know very well, is the marketing director. And Simon, Tamara's husband, both boys are called Simon. It's very confusing. <laughs> um, he's the technical manager. So very, very much. Yeah, so with, with t- Tamara and Simon as, as the kids, were they, were they brought in on sort of pocket money and just expected to? I think uh, so. <laughs> I think so. I think... Uh, to I, step up and Pocket and money is... It's a good point, really. And I think... Actually, that's the early doors in this. Let's talk about that. Is 
we are we're quite unique in in terms of or not unique but we're, we're in the sort of lesser common if you like luxury sparkling wine area in that we're not backed by this uh, whacking great business or somebody that sells handbags or something like that we are with this genuine sustainable family business that has to turn a little bit of profit every year to put back into it to keep the whole thing going mm. and so pocket money to a degree is quite a good yeah, way of putting it you know so everything goes back into it and it's this single pure vision that keeps us all going there's now 30 members of staff when I started, and most of whom are in the winery, when I started, I was employee number 11, which was back in 2014. So I've been really lucky. I've been with the business, working with them all now for five and a half years, something like that. Um, and before that, I was in restaurants. And I packed that in and wrote them a letter and said, I want to move back to Sussex. I'm, I'm sort of done with London. I love it, but I'm done with the pressure of that. Were you living up in London? I was living up in London then and working yeah. at the Ivy. And so doing lots of whiny bits, but always from a restaurant perspective. Had you been sacked or...? or <laughs> no, no, that's it, not yet. I think they were about to discover everything, so I got out early. But no, 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 I, um, I actually, Olivia, my wife, wanted to leave London. And um, I sort of thought, oh, God, what am I going to do? What, you know, what am I going to do out of there? You get a little bit blinkered. Mm. And I thought, actually, there's this amazing wine producer. That I've liked their wines for years and years, ever since I first tried them, 20 minutes away from my house. I live in Lewis, they're in Ditchling. So I just wrote them a letter and said, if ever I could do something with you, would you know, I would love it, you know, whatever that may be, you know, and they bizarrely came back and said, Come what, on. And what do you think, what, Mr. and Mrs. Robert Senior, sort of, how long do you think that they had the idea that they wanted to do this? And, and what was their background before that? Yeah, why I, did they cool. start it? Initially. And how did you start it as yeah. well? Because it, you can't do that with 50 quid and then some lunch. <laughs> no, this is true. <laughs> this is sort of... absolutely true. So they had a company called Michael's Business Systems, which was a computer hardware company. It employed huge numbers of people based in Burgess Hill, which is near right, uh, okay. near, near where we are now. So huge employers in the area. Um, they sold that and then used the funds from that. What could have so been a very local, sensible... Local, local, yeah, yeah, totally. Just, yeah. And could have, should have been a very sensible retirement thing, you know. Um, <laughs> right, and okay, because yeah. Mike and Chris, the way that they are, they, um, they're very driven. They don't do things by halves. So mm. they, they decided they were going to buy 30 acres, acres of land with, with, a, with a house on site. So they, they live there um, Chris still very much lives there to this day and, and run, manages the estate. Mike um, sadly passed away in 2014, mm-hmm. but was a huge, huge, huge member of um, you know all things English wine. And we got, got an, um, an MBE from the Queen for services for establishing what we now think of as the English mm-hmm. wine industry. So a very pivotal figure in the whole development of it. But what they did was they bought this 30 acres of land with that, that bit of cash they had from that built a winery, and as you suggest, you know, wineries don't come cheap. We dug a cellar for 300,000 bottles immediately. We, we had vineyards, we had about 14 acres of vineyards at that point. We've now got about 10 times that operational. There's and a wolf in the background. There is, I know. <laughs> there you go. That's why I'm for you. And, um, and so... They have, you know, they only have vineyards at the time to make twenty thousand bottles or something. So right, building okay. a cellar of that size, it tells you, you know, it tells you a bit about their ambition from the start. They knew what they wanted. And to Henry, do. you've been working with Ridgeview pretty much from the beginning, haven't you? Yes, I, th- I, I think, yeah, pretty much, yeah. I, I think maybe not the first vintage, but certainly the second. I think um, Mike used to come into the shop and try and sell us some wine, and. Uh, I think I think what's important to recognise is that when Mike and Chris started this up with the champagne varieties, we sort of assume because of what's on the shelves of many shops at the moment that we have lots of English sparkling wines using the champagne varieties. But at that time, there weren't many, were no. there? And there weren't many going for 
quality, dry, well-beating wines. Hundred percent. So they they were they weren't on Pioneers, their own, were but they? But they were they were. They had their heads above the parapet and Very much were, so. were leading the way. And and that's absolutely it. So Mike and Chris were not the first people to plant Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier. They, I think, are the second or third people in this country to have planted them, um, or at least to have planted them and then talked about it. There might mm. be a secret little, you know, thing. You've got a great vine in your garden. It might have been <laughs> in this house. You never know. Um, but there were a couple of other producers. So really, the sort of pioneers of the modern day English sparkling wine movement, starting in the early nineties, are people like Ridgeview, people like Night Timber, much mm. bigger business. Mm. Um, and so, so those two really actually would be very good examples of the pioneers of it. And then now you're talking about an industry that made sixteen million bottles in twenty eighteen. Um, you have about one hundred and fifty, one hundred and sixty active producers now. You know, it's 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 rocketed in twenty five years. But back in the day, back in the day then, you know, Mike and Chris were doing something that was completely out of the ordinary. Mm. They had toyed with going down to the south of France. They'd always been hugely into wine. They'd mm. loved wine. Um, and they thought about actually it would be a nice thing to do, you know, after the Michael's Business Systems thing, um, to buy a little winery, maybe move down to the south of France somewhere sensible, make a bit of wine down there. You know, lifestyle would be very nice. But Some various people. Things would ripen. It would be ideal, wouldn't it? Yeah, that would be yeah. Yeah. Far yeah. Humidity yeah. would be less. And... Mm. But actually what they did was they thought, no, we're going to stick closer to home. Lots of people were talking to them about, at that point, England being potentially suitable. And the reason people were thinking England was very suitable um, or potentially going to be quite good um, is largely that it shares a lot of similarities with Champagne. Mm. A couple of hundred miles south of the White Cliffs of Dover, you've got this northern region of France, an area there um, around Epinay called Champagne, you might have heard of it, they make a bit of fizz. And they have <laughs> chalk and limestone and clay soils and they have this sort of Kimmeridgean ridge of soil that runs up north through the rest of France under the English Channel and up in southern England so we share those soils in slightly different styles but we do share them and people thought hey if those vines work in those soils that work here we have a similar in the huge sort of broad bracket uh, climate we're both cool climate regions they're not that cool climate by our standards. We, you know, we are we we're rewriting the rule book on quite how cool cool climate is in this country, um, and and I suppose that's a big part of the discovery of the last twenty years of English wine and why they keep getting better and better is that people are understanding the uniqueness of our environment. It's not just you know champagne too. It really isn't. It's much cooler. There is a slightly longer ripening window between Veraison and picking, which is a, absolutely essential mm-hmm. um, because you know because Veraison means. Veraison is the onset of ripening. Okay. So in the UK, what we tend to find is that tends to happen somewhere in the sort of middle to sort of maybe third week of August, something like that. Um, and then we don't actually harvest until first week or two of October in many years, you know, and 10 years ago, second or third week of October mm. potentially. And now, um, you know, it's not September. uncommon to, yeah, final few mm. days of September is not mm. impossible. Um, but the champenoise tend to start picking at least two, three weeks before we do. And so because we're a bit cooler, it takes us a bit longer to ripen our grapes. And those two things, the nice long ripening season we get and the cooler temperatures do two things. We get really high acids, super crisp, super clean wines. And then we also get really concentrated fruit flavours built up over long windows of ripening. So English wines, and I think Ridgeview's wines specifically, what we really try and focus on is terroir, is tasting that where they come from. Ours are a balance of acidity and crisp, concentrated fruit. When we were growing up in the 80s, there was someone called um, Mad Glenn, and he used to produce <laughs> high-quality acid. <laughs> I saw him the other day. He spent some time in Her Majesty's um, prison. He doesn't look so well. <laughs> that, no, 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 that's acid it. Didn't See, that's a curveball. 
Yeah, but it's an aside. It, it builds a rich picture. It so, does. It so does. bring it back to you, right. Tom. What, well, I uh, wanted to know firstly, oh, was, yes, how many bottles me. do you produce there at Ridgeview? So we started off at about 20,000, something like that, as I say. And we now, working with contract growers, so again, keeping it local, we, we work with six other families who own the vineyards and we contract those and, and we work with them. Matt, our vineyard manager, who you guys have met and know very well. Struggs. Struggs. <laughs> Went yeah, on, he's king yeah. of the vineyards, isn't he? He was on Brilliant. CNM in, uh, in America the other day. They called him Matt Sturgeonal, which, <laughs> which was great. Um, he's just glorious. So vineyard manager of 18 years. So Sturgeonal is, um, he manages... It's the Sturgeon Moon. That's it. And each of them, so he sort of helps manage each of those those vineyards, and that's now got us up to about 120 acres actively producing, and we make about 250 to 300 thousand bottles of wine a year. Um, But crucially, we've got double that vineyard space. Uh, either planted or being un- or undergoing planting as we speak. So in the next three to four years, we'll double that vineyard space. And um, how many different styles of wine do you make? We just make sparkling. We make six of the core range. We make two whites and a rosé in the signature range. That's the opening price point, 30 quid-ish, a bottle sort of things. And we try and keep those Bloomsbury, Cavendish, Fitzrovia uh, quite fresh and crisp and fruit-driven um, and just really good examples of what English wine is about. Um, really high quality. And then we release these very limited release, Blanc de Blancs, Blanc de Noirs, Rosé de Noirs, a couple of thousand, Delicious. maybe five, six, seven thousand bottles of those a year, each of them. Um, and those have longer ageing in the cellar, so they have a bit more sort of yeastiness, breadiness, um, and they're very specific styles. I'm going back in and just pouring for a, um, a bit more wine for you. Thank you. So we can get a little break in the chat. There you go. But the, uh, <laughs> when, when Mike used to come in in the early days, he, he was always such a nice bloke, I always thought, and he was a, a pleasure to deal with. And we would sell him wine for when he would do uh, blind sparkling wine tastings. And I've also presented at the Ditch and Wine Club and stuff, and he, he was a member there. Um, so it's quite nice that there's that, that sort of family feel. But at that, at that point... I guess he would only have been selling his wines in the UK, probably, and met maybe only in the southeast of the UK. Big I mean, time, that's it, I think, yeah, yeah. In Scotland or Yorkshire or, or oh, Liverpool yeah. or whatever, they wouldn't have necessarily known, Absolutely. would they? That and the, the there was, was no, there was very little market for it. They were making a product that they genuinely, you know, it was, it was unknown. You know, it's, it, wine's been made in England since Roman times, but it's always been very, very... Uh, sort of quietly done, you know, bearded mm. blokes in sheds sort of thing, and I've got nothing against the bearded blokes in sheds, but it just magazine. didn't it didn't build a market, and <laughs> and so when Mike started going out there, exactly that, you know, it was absolutely pivotal, and just at that juncture, what I'll mention is, and you weren't steering it this way, but actually, ambassadors like yourselves, people like Butts, bringing that into the shop and beginning to sell it, are you you are such a strong backbone for the English sparkling wine industry, and in the history of it, when in in a hundred years time. We'll be talking about butlers as, as, and their role in bringing it out to the market. We, we sell more Ridgeview than any other sparkling wine, other than slightly a little That's bit it. more Prosecco, perhaps. But so otherwise, we sell more yeah, Ridgeview than anything. But, so, yeah. uh, but then when did they decide, or maybe did they always have a plan? Would there have been a plan to export yeah. the wine? I think there is a, when did exactly that. Kick that. In? And so, so as we began to grow and as we began to get distribution around the rest of the UK... We are, we're very lucky, we're unique in the UK in that we are producing wines in pretty much the centre of the global wine market. So, you know, every other country in the world that makes wine wants to sell wine into England, you know, broadly. Um, because it, but it's also very competitive. Um, but because we're based here, we've, we've got access to this fantastic wine market. So, so actually, there's no 
economical need for us to export at this point. We haven't touched the sides yet. We could still sell all of our wine in the UK. But going looking forward and being a sustainable family business, it's all about looking 10, 20, 30, That's interesting. So I didn't realise that. So you could survive on mm. just UK sales. Without question. In fact, we'd actually we'd, we'd do better. It would be less, yes. there'd be less investment. Yes. There'd be <laughs> arguably better value bottle price and things just selling it in the UK than there would be exporting. Yeah, it's yeah, very yeah. expensive to export. And there's huge amounts of jeopardy as well because as soon as you start doing things like credit terms for people in, mm. you know, in scary. You know, a country that's you know 15 hours away by plane, yes. you, 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 lo- you lose lose a bit of control yeah yeah um, yeah, sphincter, possibly. <laughs> there you it's go worry, quite. Yeah. and um so what so but but really they they very early on mike and chris realized that um that actually export if in a hundred years time in 50 years time you know however quickly this industry moves we're going to need other places to sell the wines and if you're going to build the brand the best way to do that is to really get people all over the world drinking it and you know we're very proud of our wines we, we genuinely as a producer there's there's very little ego there it's about people enjoying the mm. wines and we make wines that we want people to enjoy there's not a huge amount of pomp behind it we don't see them as luxury items they're premium because of the, the price mm. point the amount it costs to make wine here um, and the investment that goes into it but actually we, we just want people to enjoy them and drink them and so doing that all around the world just exacerbates that. So the first markets we went into were places like Norway was very early doors and we've been exporting to them for about 10 years, something like that, 10, 11 years. And the Scandies in general, actually, other than Denmark, Denmark sorted out, are fantastic in, in terms of the amount that they're um, importing. We used to do a bit in Denmark, but the market it became a bit more challenging. Interesting um, that the countries that don't really produce their own yeah. wine. Mm. I think originally that was quite a big thing. Is and, and and I also think the great thing about the Scandies is, A, the food seems fantastic. And, and obviously, you know, every, you know, the people are just phenomenal. And the more time I spend out there, the just the more in love with any area of Scandinavia. I, I mean, I am. Um, but I think the foods pair nicely, and they they they're not a thousand year old, you know, historical wine markets. You know, these mm. are these are you know countries that actually wine has only begun to be a thing more recently, and so they yeah, haven't got the same sense, house. They it? haven't got the same sort of you know. It's got to be Burgundy. It's got to be Bordeaux. They kind of didn't live through that those mm. times mm. In, in the mm. wine sort of stage. So actually. They're, they're very open-minded. They'll, they'll drink wine from anywhere. As long as it's good, they'll, they'll have wine from anywhere. Um, America is huge, and, and we're really beginning to tap into that a bit. And, and America could sell our entire production, I'm sure. Whereabouts in America um, do you sell to? We're in 14 states now. Wow. So we work with a distributor who brings us in um, nationally across the whole country, and then they sell to a network of distributors throughout. Okay. Brandon, the sort of younger, fitter, happier <laughs> me. Tighter um, trousers. Tighter trousers well. me, <laughs> only just though. And that's, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not quite not, sure how yeah, that's possible. Not if my running has anything to do with it. I'm catching them up. <laughs> um, but he's literally tomorrow hopping on a plane um, first to Amsterdam bless him and then he's going straight out to America and he's doing six oh, we're states we're off to Amsterdam in a week yeah. or so oh yeah, yeah. set well, us up look us up so yeah we now export to um, 17 countries um, lots of them are uh, European um, Holland actually is, uh, is an amazing market as well America's huge the really exciting one at the moment and the bottle labels because for all of these export markets you have to do different back labels and things um, my favourite at the moment is Japan just because it's beautiful and I'm desperate to go You get to go, I was going to yeah. say, do you get to go there? I'm desperate to, <laughs> I think Brandon's going to, I've just had a baby, I see, you know, my wife and I have just had a baby. <laughs> you, you and Brandon. <laughs> Brandon and I, yeah, Brandon and I have got a baby and one, what, we both together. have to be in the country, one of us yeah. has to be in the country at the right time. <laughs> We're close, but not quite that yet. 
um, yet. <laughs> it's a family any. business. It, it totally is. And um, so I suppose that's the joy of it. And but but everything we do, we try and do with the integrity and the sort of the ethos of the family. And we try and work with people that we share sort of this sort of this relationship with. It's got to be good for both parties. And so we're not everywhere. We don't make enough wine to be everywhere. Two hundred fifty thousand bottles sounds like loads of wine. It's actually it's not. You know, it's it's really not. Um, so it's about relationships, and we just try and make I suppose all any interaction people have with the business any of us that work for it we genuinely care and we kind of just want and people's interactions with us to be as high quality as the wines which is kind of why we work with you as well it's got a lot to do with our personal relationships which is how we buy most of our wines but Ridgeview is definitely one of our favourites and very close to our hearts it is, isn't it? And, and it helps that the, geographically that they're really close, I think. So yes, they can deliver three times a week when we forget to order. Absolutely. <laughs> without, without being sick of fanting, they are I very can, nice people. I can order wines from you and get them picked up when we do the <laughs> yeah, delivery. Swap. It's very nice. Yeah, yeah. No cash changes hands, does it? <laughs> the, um, it? But I think that's, what, I think that's right, isn't it? That, that there are other top quality wine producers around the world say Californian producers could easily sell all of their production within California yeah. and probably within yeah. close proximity to their vineyard but yeah. they want wines to be seen in Europe to create the brand probably get recognition maybe mm. get them into Michelin star restaurants mm-hmm. and it's a bigger picture isn't it but it's quite Absolutely. it's quite complex isn't it and maybe the way not wanting to get into it particularly but the way that the politics are going at the moment maybe that model might change in 10 years, 20 yeah, years' time. Totally might, in a month. Might totally might. And that, that <laughs> whole stuff, days. again, avoiding it, but all of that mess that's currently going on is, is it's bad for all of us, isn't it? And um, <laughs> But it is volatile. Yeah. And, yeah. and that, yeah, and I suppose that is also the good reason why to to sell to independent wine shops, to then also sell into restaurants, to export, to spread where you sell to as a producer. You know, it, it sort of slightly and your dampens role, your risk. Sorry, your, your role is to, in the business, is to manage that, is yeah. it? Because the, a lot of your wine will be sold by the glass or, or by the bottle in restaurants, which I, I presume is quite high volume. But equally, you probably need it in some shops where we can communicate the message to the, the, the customers, but we might not sell as much as a restaurant, I guess. Um, you sell a lot more than most restaurants. Right, this okay. Genuinely, genuine, this podcast, this sponsored by Butler's, this is, isn't it? So, but you need to, the, these are two different parts of the market, aren't they? And sometimes Look they clash. Sometimes <laughs> they Drink arouse, they're naturally aroused. <laughs> Um, you, it's quite difficult to manage how they, how we all work symbiotically. Mm. Sometimes it's very I, difficult, I and so and we begin the year genuinely on allocation. Where so so my 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 job, my role, I'm I'm the sales and business development director, and and my role is to begin the year working with Simon, the head winemaker, and Tamara, the CEO, and and Marty, the marketing director, and all all of us sit down and we go, well, we've got this much wine, haven't we? So you know, what Simon, what have we got to sell? Right, we've got this. Tam, what you know, kind of you know, how, what have we got to do economically to make this work? Mardi, what do we, you know, where are we going with the brand, and what do we want, sort of the effect to be of where we sell it? And then my job is to sort of take all of that information, and say, okay, we're going to sell this much to export markets, this much to restaurants, this much to here, and of those restaurants, we'd like it to be these ones, please, if we can. And and we allocate. How have you not been sacked? <laughs> I know, great, I know. It's got close a few times. I think, but I think that's also <laughs> been part. I think that's part of the job. Is you know, you've got to sell slightly close to the wind. Yeah. And um, <laughs> can't play it too safe. That's it. Um, but. Um, 
And it's working brilliantly, actually. Genuinely wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And there's big interest in English, English sparkling. Um, and as our volumes grow, as I say, we've got these new vineyards and we are increasing our production. We've just built a new winery. My, my role is very much about looking now with very little wine to sell, looking at two or three years' time when we have a lot more wine to sell, where mm. to put those. And, and that's, that's a brand new challenge for me and for the business. And, and we are, we're sort of going at it with relish. It's fantastic. Um, I and thought your job role was to, to be the dandy fop. No, no, that's just something I do on. I do that for free. It's a hobby. That's just an additional element that I bring to it. We should go back to what you were saying earlier, which I think is fairly key for the for the customers. Where you were saying that um, Ridgeview matches really well with food, particularly in Scandinavian Mm. countries, but obviously elsewhere. So, could we run through? The, the wines in brief the, 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 the names that people would see on the shelves they would recognise um, how they sort of what they sort of their characters are like. and what they um, what food they match with cool. maybe would that I'm, be good I'm would that be than, a good idea more than yeah so we can go off right. <laughs> yeah see you later hour, can't here we, we go <laughs> 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 Henry and Cassie have left the room now, so um, <laughs> I don't know much about this podcast. What do, what do you think, listeners? About this? <laughs> uh, right, so Bloomsbury. Bloomsbury is our signature blend. So it's got a slightly sort of greeny, bluey label to it. Um, the first three wines are named after areas of London, after a story about a man called Christopher Merritt, who in 1662 in London was the first person to write down the intentional method to make a sparkling wine. 40 years before it was done in Champagne, which is a longer story than we can go into mm-hmm. on the podcast. But Bloomsbury, the wine, is a blend of Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier from a number of different years, production, blended together, so it's a non-vintage. Um, and because it's Chardonnay dominant, it's very lemon citrusy, very fresh, very clean, um, great aperitif wine, mm. oysters, anything like that. Anything okay. that comes off Brighton Good Beach party within wine. reason. It, it, that will work very nicely. Okay. You know? And so like oysters, fish and chips would be... Is, is Perfect. Nice. Friday night, yeah. that'd be good. Cavendish, wine number two, uh, slightly darker label. It's got a kind of pinky, orangey sort of hue to it. Um, that is the same vineyards, the same mixture of vintages that go into it and the same grapes that go into it as Bloomsbury, but it's two-thirds Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier, one-third okay. Chardonnay. I like that one a lot. Yeah, I like you like one. the Pinot. Mm, it's my fave, yeah. 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 You like the <laughs> He's a tiger. He's a <laughs> So two thirds Pinot, Pinot, um, Pinot Noir, and Meunier in the UK broadly give you kind of the richer, earthier, more savoury flavours, a bit more red berry skin kind of character, um, and a bit more of the weight and richness and roundness of the wine. So that's a slightly fuller style, a bit more like a classic champagne. That's that's like. how I okay. compare it. Um, and you've got Fitzrovia, which is in your glass right now. And Fitz is for me, it's a really sort of zesty, bright, clean rosé. People often think of rosé as being a bit sweet, a bit overly fruity. It was in the nineties. It doesn't have to be now. And what this is, is Mike made it uh, in 1997, the first ever vintage, and he hated rosé at the time, and he just thought he wanted to make like an anti-rosé, you know? And so what he did is he took loads of Chardonnay and a little bit of Pinot Noir and Meunier, um, a similar blend to Bloomsbury, you know, mm. different but similar, quite Chardonnay dominant, and then we add a bit of red wine before we second ferment it in the bottle to make it sparkling. Right, okay. And that gives it this lovely pink colour, and the red comes from some of the earlier ripening Pinot Noir, and so it's lemon citrusy and zesty, but it's got this chewy, delicious 
mm. crunchy rib berries. It's particularly mm. strawberry good at the moment. Yeah, it's it? delicious. It's, it's not been my favourite in the past, I would say, but, but at the moment, I think it's banging. I love it. As the I'm young people say. What food banging. would you have with that? So I would say, so Cavendish, going back, um, something salty. I really like something salty. Yeah. So actually like roast chicken, things like that, Christmas, it's a really nice mm-hmm. um, aperitif in a yeah. more autumnal, wintry to start time of year. kind of pays. Fitz, Fitzrovia, it's, for me, it's like things like, like a really light, zesty, citrusy goat's cheese that will cut through that really nicely and sit well with it. Um, but actually, because it's got this like red berry fruit to it and this little bit of aromatics mm. from the Meunier, Asian-y dishes, as long as they're not too sweet, just something with okay. a little bit of spice to it is quite fun. Okay. Sparkling wine, full stop, like salt, because it's high acid, so acid and salt, good mm-hmm. mix, and it likes deep fried stuff that it can sort of Lovely. crunch through. We're all winners here, aren't we? <laughs> this is... And then we've got three um, higher Rips. price point wines between 50 and 60 pounds. Um, you've got Blanc de Blanc at 60. Blanc de Blanc is pure Chardonnay, 100% Chardonnay from one single Lovely. seven acre vineyard. We make tiny amounts of it. Um, it won the best sparkling wine in the world award at the Decanter Wine Award, World Wine Awards in 2010. Um, and that is like citrus central lemon zesty fresh crisp structured character like laser beam very precise wine, yeah. yeah totally um, again seafood shellfish mm. things like that it's absolutely delicious with really 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 old like things like Comte cheese you know like really nice. sort of you know when they cheeses as they age lose their water they get more mm. salty more pungent yeah, is that a style yeah, that, that you would good. age or you could age totally yeah, yeah, yeah compared yeah. to the others or yeah I always think Chardonnay ages better than Pinot yeah. and, and so and what you want in a wine to age is really really high acid and really high quality fruit that's very concentrated because both of those need to live in the bottle of wine for the length of time you're going to age it and, and yeah Blanc de Blanc will definitely do that so for example Beatrix has just been born and I've bought a load of uh, magnums. Magnum, yeah, Chardonnay Magnums, <laughs> which I'm hoping we can have. Yeah, I was going to say, we'll, we'll drink those so next Christmas. So then you've got next wine, Blanc de Noir. Blanc de Noir is the opposite of Blanc de Blanc. It is just a white wine made from black glass, from black, black glasses. Glasses. <laughs> uh, from black grapes. And um, we make it with largely sort of two-thirds Pinot Noir, one-third Meunier. And it's like Simon Roberts, head winemaker's greatest hits of Pinot Noir and Meunier of the year. All of our different vineyards, the seven different sites we get fruit from, we bring them in, and as he's fermenting them, if he notices a particular parcel of Pinot that he loves, he'll try and hold a bit back and make his favourite. And we don't make it every year, and when we do it, it's time but that's fuller and richer and rounder and more savoury and red berry fruit and licorice and fennel and that kind of thing and and um, so kind of quite a, an interesting sparkling wine because people often think sparkling is very is just citrusy and fresh and crisp actually it can be really quite broad and rich mm. that is one to have with anything gaming mm. you know venison um, venison game. might yeah. work exactly low fat like gaming things like venison into wood season. pigeon Wave a bit of that over a pan. Get some morels, chirols, mushrooms, yes. savoury flavours. That would do it. That'd be really good. Loads of butter and salt. Um, and finally, you've got the Rosé de Noir. Rosé de Noir is a title that we made up, it turns out. A friend of mine who works for Champagne House, when we named it Rosé de Noir, said they, we don't call it that. And it's like, that, but that's all right. Don't worry about it after. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, Bonjour. And, um, <laughs> and Rosé de Noir is um, it's a rosé made from just black skin grapes, like the Blanc de Noir. Um, and what we do is we macerate the skins a little bit. Um, and so what you do is you press the red berry, uh, just the Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, uh, just the red berry fruit, and you, as you're extracting the juice, you leave it in contact with the skins. Okay. And For how you long? extract a bit of colour out of it. Anywhere between, you know, maybe sort of six, eight, 
12 hours, Minutes. something like that. Yeah, 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 exactly that. Yeah. Um, and the colour is very light. Fitzrovia often is, the, the other rose it would make is a bit brighter, a bit more sort of rosé coloured. Um, rosé noir, because of the way it's made quite naturally, the colour begins to drop out and the older it gets, the more coppery it goes. So it's mm. a very light style of rosé. Mm. But the body of it, what you get from that extraction from the skins is you get red berry fruit flavours, you get this creamy mouthfeel texture. It's not quite tannin, like you get in a red wine, but, but there's a bit of grippiness to it. Mm. And so it's quite a serious rosé. And in brief, when, mm. when we get custom, customers coming in, they either ask for something crisp and dry, which all of yours are, I guess, mm. aren't they? But maybe the fruitier styles mm -hmm. or they say biscuity yeah so which would be the ones that they should buy if they want biscuity so and which that's why we've split other. it into two quite easy categories you've got the signature styles Bloomsbury Cavendish Fitzrovia mm -hmm. if they're, they're named after London ones those are all quite fruity quite fresh quite crisp easy okay. drinking you know I, I drink bucket loads of each of those more so than the others because actually if you're having a party or you're just home from work on a Friday evening and you want the glass that's exactly the kind of thing you're after and they're more affordable and they're more affordable yeah, yeah. and then you've got Blanc de Blanc Blanc Noir Rosé Noir the limited release wines and those have twice as much time in the cellar three years in the cellar they're more biscuity brioche bready um, high, slightly higher price point still very good value for what they are I think but those are the more Okay. Serious structured one. And just to finish, do you think, Cassie, yeah. unless you have any further I've questions? I've got loads of questions, uh, but we can't keep going forever. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. Not just yeah. your, your uh, Ridgeview wines, which obviously you, you would promote and we won't embarrass you by trying to get you to do that. But the, in general, why should people buy English mm. sparkling wines as opposed to sparkling wines around the world? Good point. Thank I you. Think, um, I think the key thing for buying English wine is you have to buy English wine based on the merits of English wine. The, the, the local thing is fantastic and you should be supporting local and we should, we should all be supporting local in the same way we do with food. So that is a key thing. You know, buying local, drinking local, it's all the same. That's, that's Shopping fantastic. Local. Shopping local. It's from a sustainability point <laughs> and all the rest of it, that's great. So do, you know, that's a factor. But actually, you should only be doing that if the quality is really, really good. And I think people should be buying English wine because it is the most exciting place on the planet. Tasmanians, I'm sorry, we're just a bit more <laughs> exciting. You are amazing, but we're just a bit more. Um, for sparkling wine, we are a unique climate. It's very rare to have a climate that makes great sparkling. So that's what we do very well here. Um, and what you're going to get in the UK is you're going to get really high quality wine. It's too challenging a place to make wine that people, people could just bin off cheap wine they can't do that you have to just go for absolute quality so you can rest assured that when you're buying an English wine you're getting a high quality very handmade very very focused product um, and I think you're also getting very good value in the UK comparative to other markets that are more established so if you look at champagne 40 quid in champagne once you've stepped out of the entry price point champagnes and things which which can be quite good value but aren't always the most exciting in the same way that mm -hmm. any entry price point wine is it can be nice but might not you know you might mm -hmm. not eulogise about it Um I think in, in England, if you're going to spend 40, 50 quid on a bottle of wine, you're going to get more focused, smaller production, potentially more high quality fruit than you might in more established regions as well. And there's good stories behind them, isn't there? hundreds. And relationships. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know about you, Cassie Gould, but I have a feeling that Mr. Sergi might be appearing on future podcasts. <laughs> I think he might be staying the night at this Hello. rate. <laughs> but for now, shall we say goodbye? Yes. Thank you very much. Adios. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Right, that's it. We're off.